Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the foundations were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Sabbath. Sabbath. I wonder if there's a more religious-sounding word in the English language. If you are of a certain age, you remember blue laws, perhaps. Blue laws were instituted long, long ago in our country and restricted activities on what was called the Christian Sabbath. I grew up recognizing restrictions upon Sunday, which was called the Christian Sabbath. Uh, I, uh, some of my friends couldn't read the comics that came in the newspaper on Sunday. Now, once again, some of you young people don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but for many of us, on the Sunday paper, there was a full-color section of comics, comic strips. But there were some families that they were forbidden to read those on Sunday because it was the Sabbath. My mom had some fairly strict restrictions about what we could do on Sunday. It didn't stop her from going out to eat, though, as I've told you before, like... She wasn't worried about other people working on the Sabbath. She just was not supposed to work herself. And so that was her justification that every Sunday, no matter how poor we were, I found that we went out to dinner after church. There was no labor. There was restricted recreation. When we moved to Texas, if you went to the grocery store on a Sunday morning, which I rarely did, you would find all the liquor covered over. You couldn't purchase it on Sunday morning until 10 o'clock or noon or whenever. There were restrictions that were holdovers from this understanding of Sunday being the Sabbath. Some of us have family or friends who are engaged in Shabbat gatherings. On Friday evening, they gather for meals and for worship, much of it with a Jewish taint or Jewish tenor to it. There are Messianic congregations who believe in Jesus as Messiah, but Nevertheless, they observe Jewish traditions. Some see Sunday worship, believe it or not, on the other side of the spectrum. Some see Sunday worship as the mark of the beast. Just this week, we received in the mail a beautiful book. And it was a book called The Great Controversy. And immediately I recognized the name of the book, but I couldn't quite remember its category, to my shame. But then as I looked at it, it's the foundational text of the Seventh-day Adventists, and it was written over a hundred years ago, and in it, the approach to the book is that the gathering for Sunday on worship is the mark of the beast. Christians should be gathering on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, not Sunday. So you have people who believe that about Sabbath observance and what it means to say there is a Sabbath. Many cultures in history, I think you know this, Many cultures, the seventh day is just another day in the work week. But especially in Western civilization, if you'll think about it, in Western civilization, as a result of the, as a result of the influences of Christendom, the Sunday Sabbath was instituted, uh, it, and it still carries over in our culture. And our capital R Reformed brothers, they still believe that there are responsibilities we have as New Testament Christians to observe some sense of Sabbath participation. Uh, many of those families work through the catechism. One of the catechisms says this, 
How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Now listen to this. This is for present-day application by some Christians. They say this. The answer to the catechism question is, the Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And many of our brothers, many churches that we would affirm that they are in the faith, that's how they understand Sunday to work. That there are very specific, some of us would suggest legalistic restrictions on how we can invest our time on what they call the Christian Sabbath, in other words, on Sunday. And this all roots back in America to the Puritans because they brought this philosophy here. Now, you know I quote the Puritans often. I honor the Puritans. I think they get a bad rap. But they brought with them this idea that the Sunday equals the Sabbath, and therefore there are, should be civil laws to people who break the Sabbath. And in some degree or another, that has stuck. And so what you have is you have your neighbors this morning, many of them who are not showing up for church on the Sabbath, but on Sunday they still take advantage of a day where they go to the beach, or they drive into the mountains, or they're at the coffee shops right now, and especially today, they will worship at the altar of football later on today. And that exists. This sixth or seventh day, it's really the first day of the week, this idea that it's a Sabbath, that exists in our culture because of the influence of Christendom and Christianity. Your neighbor doesn't appreciate that. But you can ask him, if they went on, on their boat today, you can ask them later, did you enjoy the Sabbath? Now, as you see before I'm through, yesterday was the Sabbath, but anyway, we'll get there. Is today, in other words, Sunday, is today the Sabbath? If yes, then what are the ways that we should observe it, like the catechism has said? Are there restrictions on how we go about our day on Sunday, the so-called Sabbath? What does that look like? By the way, just to foreshadow where we're headed, no one has an adequate answer to that. We know we're not under Old Testament law with all of its regulations. So how do we apply it to some idea of a Christian Sabbath? Is today Sunday the Sabbath? If it's not, are there still things we can learn? Are there still things we should understand? Are there principles we should apply to our lives from Sabbath truths in the Word of God? One thing is sure, and if you leave with nothing else this morning, I hope you'll get this point are sometimes burdensome, or maybe for some people, an idealistic view of the Sabbath, it needs a makeover. Because the Sabbath was a gift to be embraced with joy. And its foundation, even though its structure and practice looks different for those of us who are Christians, but its foundation is a basis for hope and joy even today. So with all that by way of introduction, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2? We're in a long study. We've just begun through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And we're in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. And we want to look at the seventh day, the day of rest in the creation account. It's a whole other discussion. And I looked, did some work on it this week. And you'll thank me for not going into all the details. But where did a seven-day week come from? There are all kinds of ideas. Some say it goes back to Babylon. Some say it has to do with lunar cycles and, and the idea of four lunar cycles in a month or, 
or whatever. But if you believe the Bible is history, as we do, then we find the answer here. And the fact that there's a seven-day structure in nearly all civilizations is a, can I say it this way, it's a cultural artifact, it's a cultural memory from the beginning. Because that's what we read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Look in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now this text this morning, I'm going to approach it in a little bit different way. It's a brief text, and it lends itself to modeling for you what I hope I model every Sunday, but for this morning, we're just going to treat this text as a Bible study. And we're going to look at it through the three steps that we always should engage in when we handle the Bible. And that is, we begin with observation, and from observation, looking at the pieces of the text, we come to an interpretation, and then from interpretation, we get our application into our lives. Now, if any of you are thinking with me, you know that we can fall into traps immediately because we want to read the Bible very superficially, come up with an application. But if you don't go through a fairly careful, and I don't think it's complicated, but it's a fairly careful process of letting the text say what it says and then looking at what the text meant and then from its interpretation, giving the application, you can end up with all kinds of problems. If you jump with application first, if you superficially look at the text and you say, well, I think this is what this means to me, well, it may be what it means to you, but one day God's going to say, where did you get that from that text? And so what we're going to model this morning is a process that really we go through every Sunday, but it's going to be explicit this morning. So we begin with, what does this text say? What does it say? This is the process of observation. Let's look at these three verses and let's see what we find in the text. Moses wrote this, but there's only one character here. He's the eyewitness, and it's God, right? There aren't any other participants in the text. And God evidently revealed this to Moses through his spirit. So look at the text again, and let's see what we find. In verse 1, we find that this is the whole of creation. However you understand the timing of creation, by the time you get to the end of day 6... Everything is created and everything is pronounced good, and including at this point the creation of the hosts of heaven. So this is the heavens and the earth, they were finished, and the host of them. So even by this time, in some way, we don't know the specifics, even the spiritual realm, evidently, the spiritual, the angels of God, for example, evidently had been created. And so in verse 2 it says, on the seventh day, God, notice the verbs, he finished his work, and he rested, and then in verse 3, he blessed, notice the verbs, and he made it holy. And the verbs form the foundation, the backbone of any text like this. The idea of finishing and resting, and even the idea of seven, is especially finishing and resting, those are from 
excuse me, resting and seven, those are from one Hebrew word, the root of it, which means seventh or rest. And it's the word from which we get Sabbath. The word Sabbath is not in our verses, but this is the institution of what we know as Sabbath. And so he, it says that he made this day holy. And if you're thinking with me this morning, perhaps you think that everything God makes is holy. Everything is set apart for him. And that is true. The only way I know to say it, and I'm, please, I'm not being botanic or smart aleck or, or trite. It's just the truth is everything is set apart to God. Some things are set apart to God more than others. And so you have seven days, six days are God's days, but the seventh day was set apart in some unique way for some unique purpose. And that's what making it holy is, naming it as holy, setting it apart, separating it. And so what you find in these verses is you find that unlike the other days, did you note this? There's no evening and morning. Day one, day two, three, four, five, six, Every record, go back and look at it, verse chapter 1 if you want to. At the end of every day, it was evening and morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. The seventh day, there is no evening and morning. There's an emphasis here on God's work three times. And there's an emphasis on the seventh day. It's mentioned three times. On that seventh day of creation, God rested. And the idea, evidently, is that God ceased because we've just read that God spoke everything into existence. You recognize that God didn't need a breather. He wasn't tired. There was no depleted energy with God. He created, he worked with, as one author says, with effortless ease. This is the way God creates. And so he didn't need a rest. The Bible tells us that God doesn't need rest. In Psalm 121 verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't need a rest. He doesn't need a breather. I was thinking about this this last week because I undertook a chore in my house to paint. Now, some of you remember that this is not my skill set. It's not my spiritual gift to paint. But something needed painting, and supposedly I made some commitment to do it myself, and so I've put it off as long as I could, and I got the paint out, and I went and got painter's tape, and I taped everything, and, and I prepped it, and I, and I got it all painted, all the trim painted, and, and it, just, it just looked. The problem is I was exhausted. <laughs> and people, I have to confess to you, I'm talking about it was about a seven-foot wide space. <laughs> a seven-foot wide space with door trim. It took me hours and I was sore. My knees were hurting. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting more sympathy from my wife for all of this labor that I'd put in. And I needed to rest. That's not God's kind of rest. God didn't get to the seventh day and say, I'm just worn out. God got to the seventh day and he ceased. And in ceasing, he said, that's really good. And by the way, that's the way I thought once the paint dried <laughs> and I got all the tape off and I looked at it, it's like, I did a pretty good job, which is against my usual philosophy because I try to not do painting well so I don't get asked to do it again. <laughs> Verse 31 of chapter one says, 
And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was what? Very good. And then the very next verse says the seventh day came and he had finished everything. And he ceased from his creative labor. And he, if we can say it this way, he took pride in what he had accomplished. He ceased in satisfaction because his works were finished and they were very good. And therefore there's no ongoing creation. It was a perfectly executed creation. We're going to get to the rest of chapter 2 over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to shift back as almost a flashback into day 6. But the first three verses of chapter 2 says that after the sixth day, God was finished with creation. And only procreation and self-perpetuation under his sustaining care continues. God does many other works. Jesus said, my father is still working, but the work of creation he has accomplished and he has rested from. The work of creation was finished. Now, in observing these verses, here's what we find. What does this text say? It says that the seventh day was set apart to mark God's satisfaction. The seventh day was set apart to mark the satisfaction of God. And here's the thing to think about. Without sin and rebellion, without what we know as chapter 3 in Genesis... Without sin and rebellion, Eden's existed would have continued in completed excellence. That's the reason there's no morning or evening. Because in the garden, the seventh day, in a sense, would have remained forever. It would have been a time of, of exaltation in God's perfect creation. The very good would have never ended, just like the seventh day apparently didn't end, at least conceptually speaking. There's a very real sense that the Sabbath rest, this perfect satisfaction in the very good, it was another thing that was lost at the fall. The only thing new to enter creation after this day was sin, evil, and despair. And those are not created things. Those are imperfections, moral imperfections in God's good creation. But the creation work was finished. And the seventh day was set aside, set apart to mark God's satisfaction. That's what the text says. The second step of Bible study is to ask the question, what did this mean? And please note the past tense. What did this mean? This is the step of interpretation. And this question asks, what did this mean to its original readers or hearers? Until you know what the original message was, you were at a loss to find a contemporary application. What did this mean when it was originally written? Well, let's ask ourselves, who were the first people to hear these words or to read these words? They were the children of Israel in the wilderness at Sinai. They were the children of Israel when God gave the law to Moses and God revealed the history of of his people, Israel. Now they knew parts of the history. It's not that this was brand new to them, but God revealed it to them in a specific and a systemic way. These are the first readers. They were a brand new nation. They were a burgeoning power. And until now, now think about this. Until now, from what we see in the Bible, the Sabbath had very little structure. 
There's no reference to it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, no reference to Sabbath. It's not that they didn't know about it, but we have no restrictions. We have no instructions. We don't know what the seventh day was like for them. But for the people of Israel, now a new nation under God's covenant, they were now going to be God's representation to the rest of the world. God gave them his law, and in giving them his law, he revealed specifics about how they should observe the seventh day. How should they should observe the Sabbath. In the law, it became a basic covenant marker. And these commands, which sometimes we think of them, we assume that they were burdensome. They were really to be blessings. And this shouldn't surprise us. Do you remember what our Lord said? In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here's what we forget. In fact, perhaps for some of us, we've never realized it before. Every seventh day under the old covenant, the Sabbath showed up. And the purpose of that was to remind the people of Israel about their covenant-keeping God, His power. It was a reminder. And here's the way to think about it. It was a reminder of what was lost in Eden. We don't think of it this way, but we should. For example, on the Sabbath day, they were to do what? No, no food preparation. Why? Because in Eden, God provided all the food. In the, on the Sabbath day, the restrictions, and we could have a whole sermon on all of these Old Testament restrictions about Sabbath observance, they were never to carry a heavy load. Why? Is that just arbitrary? No, it was because back before sin in Eden, there were no heavy burdens. There were no heavy loads. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, they were to do no labor. Why is that? Because on the seventh day, whatever labor they were assigned, it was easy. It didn't have the sweat of the brow. Remember, there were no thorns and thistles, as we're going to see in chapter 3. The Sabbath was a recapitulation of how great Eden had been. And even in the wilderness, remember what happened when God provided the bread, the manna from heaven? When it came to the sixth day, they were to gather up double because there would be no provision on the seventh, but God had abundantly provided. And so there was this miraculous provision of bread out of the sky, and it was just another way of, on the Sabbath day, you didn't have to worry about that because God had doubly provided on Friday. And so when the seventh day came, you were reminded that you didn't have to go gather bread because once again, the God of heaven provides everything for you. Sabbath observance was a beautiful, but also I think perhaps a painful reminder of what was lost in Eden. And God, at the end of those six days of creation, he ceased from his labor and he said, this is very good. And he took it all in in satisfaction. And without sin, that would have continued. But sin ruined all of that. That Sabbath rest, that Sabbath ceasing, that constant provision without hard labor, all of that went away. 
And God said, no, remember the seventh day and don't do all of these things that you have to do because of sin, because you need to recognize what was lost, but also you need to recognize what will be restored. And we'll get there before we're through. So Sabbath was a blessed reminder of God's, the creator's goodness. And so here is what this meant to the first readers. What this meant was that the Sabbath was set apart to mark God's promises. The Sabbath was set apart to mark God's promises, especially to his people Israel. The Sabbath was set apart to mark the covenant, you could say. You could also say it was set apart to mark the nation. But all of these things are wrapped up in the fact that the God of Israel was the one who provided, who guided, who had made promises and who would come through with those promises. And so like dietary restrictions, like circumcision, like the tabernacle and then the temple, like sacrifices, like Passover, all of these were covenant markers that were to remind the people of Israel, our God is doing something. Our God did something in the past. He's doing something now. And he promises, this is important, he promises to do something in the future. And therefore, every Sabbath, they were to stop. They were to cease. And they were to reflect back on what they lost. And they would, were to, in a sense, you can say it this way, they were to grieve the burdens that they still carried. And they were to understand the promises of God for the future. The Sabbath was to set apart, was set apart to mark God's promises. So that's what the text says, and that's what the text meant. So if that's what the text says, and that's what the text meant, what does the text mean? What does the text mean for us today? What applications are there? Because, and here where you have to stop, here's where you have to stop and, and just think. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, has no direct command to us. And we are not Israel, the covenant nation. We are not under the law of Sinai. And so you read Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and therefore you conclude, this has nothing to do with me. I'm a Christian. Is that the right way to handle the scripture? No. But we have to take a level of care because indeed we are not Israel. Indeed, we are not under that kind of covenant stipulation. The New Testament rejoices in the truth that we are no longer under law in the sense that the nation was under law. So what do we do with Sabbath? What do we understand it to be? Well, before I show you the three provisions that we can exult in, let me just warn you some things that it doesn't mean. What this text doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we must keep Sabbath rules and regulations on Sunday. For one thing, if the Sabbath is still any day of the week, it's still the seventh day. It's Saturday. And if you want to set aside Saturday with some kind of special observation, you are completely free to do so, but you have no biblical mandate to do so as a Christian. In fact, we need not keep Sabbath rules and regulations at all. The Christian Sabbath, though it's a cultural reality, and though many of our brothers and sisters talk about the Sabbath, and some of us were raised with Sabbath restrictions on Sunday, Biblically speaking, 
The Sabbath is Saturday, and the follower of Jesus Christ has no restrictions either on Saturday or Sunday. You say, oh, but wait a minute, what about church? We'll get there. But our argument from Scripture, because after all, we want to be Bible people, we're, we're, we're not so much Calvary Baptist Church as we are Calvary Bible Church. I mean, let's be serious about the Bible. And what we find in the Bible is this, at least three reasons. First of all, the New Testament does not enjoin Sabbath observance. In fact, functionally, it dismisses it or repudiates it. Think about it this way. If you've studied the New Testament, you find plenty of admonitions for how you should live, how you should walk with God, how you should battle your flesh. Plenty of admonitions. Sometimes we get wearied because we feel like, once again, we're back under law. We shouldn't, but nevertheless, that's our experience because there are commands that we are to follow. There are no commands to observe the Sabbath. You say, what about the Ten Commandments? Under the Old Covenant, there are Ten Commandments. Nine of those are repeated and enjoined upon Jesus' followers. There's one that's not. Do you have any idea which one it is? There is no Sabbath regulation in the New Testament. At best, the New Testament is somewhat indifferent. For example, in Paul's great text in Romans 14... He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you catch what Paul's saying? Maybe some people think that either on Saturday, or maybe they think that Sunday ought to replace Saturday. They think, well, there are specific things we should do. Okay, they're free to do that. But it can't be enjoined. It can't be laid upon any of the rest of us as a requirement. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, in history, if you look at the first couple to three centuries of the church, everybody, all of the church fathers, the the scholars that wrote and that we have their records, all of them acknowledge that Sabbath requirement is not enjoined upon Christians. That Jesus' followers are no longer under the old covenant and therefore do not, are not mandated to keep Sabbath regulations. The New Testament does not enjoin Sabbath observance. In fact, it functionally repudiates it. The second reason is because the Sabbath was a shadow. Remember that word. The Sabbath was a shadow. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. This will be the only other text I'll have you look at this morning, but it's helpful to look at this. In the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2. This is the great letter of Paul which exalts the person of Jesus Christ as the summary, the, the, the culmination of everything that God had promised. And in Colossians chapter 2, by the way, you'll note that another shadow, another circumstance, another practice of Judaism referenced earlier in chapter 2. We won't deal with it, but circumcision is referred to. And the text basically says that Christ is now our circumcision. But you look down to verses 13 and 14. These are the ones I want you to focus in on. Look at verses 13 and 14 this morning. It says there, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this is what God has done through Jesus Christ. All of the legal demands 
that especially God followers would have felt under the law, all of those are now set aside. They've all been nailed to the cross. The guilt that produced, that was produced by them has been removed by Jesus. Now look with me in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. By the way, there were dietary restrictions on the Old Covenant. Paul says, that's over. Don't let anyone pass judgment about that. And then he says, or with regard to a festival, there were all kinds of festivals under the law, right? Or new moon, or a, what's the word? Sabbath. These are a, please say the word out loud, shadow. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Messiah, belongs to Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow. The Sabbath was a shadow of the redemption and restoration that would be provided in Christ. And Paul says, now that the reality has come, the shadow has passed away. The great preacher Ray Steadman, years ago, he illustrated this, I thought, beautifully. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, some 20 years ago, as a much younger man, I was in Hawaii. I found myself engaged to a lovely girl who lived in Montana and whom I hadn't seen for three or four years. We were writing back and forth in those lonely days. This was before email and FaceTime and everything else. We were writing back and forth in those lonely days, and she sent me her picture. It was a beautiful picture, and I showed it to all my friends dozens of times. I propped it up on the desk, and I would look at it at least three or four times a day. It was all I had to remind me of her, and it served moderately well for that purpose. But one wonderful day, she arrived in Hawaii, and I saw her face to face. I didn't spend much time with the picture after that, nor have I since. He says, the other day I was cleaning out the garage and ran across the picture. It was still a beautiful picture, and I noted that she had not changed very remarkably since those days, but I found that the picture was quite incomplete and unsatisfying. Listen carefully. When the real thing comes, there is no longer any need for the shadow, for the picture. And that's the reason, as Christians, we are not commanded, mandated, to some kind of Sabbath observance. Because the third reason, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of the shadow. From Colossians, we see that. All of these were shadows, but there's no longer a need for the shadow. The writer of Hebrews addresses this. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So, as followers of Jesus the Messiah, through what God has done on the cross in making us right with him, we no longer are under the law of the Old Testament nation of Israel. And the shadow, all of the shadows, Remember, there were dietary restrictions, but now the bread of life has come, right? Remember that in the Old Testament, under the law, there was circumcision, but that Colossians text says Jesus is now the means by which our hearts are no longer uncircumcised. In the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle and the temple, but Jesus was bold enough to say, 
one greater than the temple is here. Remember? He said, you tear this temple down in three days, I'll rise it up again. Under the old covenant, there were all kinds of sacrifices. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, Jesus is the one who has set aside those sacrifices. Once for all, he has given his life. And it's the same with the Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath anymore because the Sabbath pointed forward to one that would be the ultimate means of rest and the ultimate promise. Now remember, what did the Sabbath do? It pointed back to what had been lost and it pointed forward to what God would provide. And what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment of all of that. And so ritual observances some kind of legalistic external observations no longer are necessary because we now have Sabbath rest in Christ. And that's why we don't practice Sabbath observances, either on Saturday or on Sunday. Now, that's why we don't keep Sabbath. But what, again, are the implications and applications for us today as Jesus followers? Well, I'm going to give you three. There are probably more, but we'll focus on three. The first is this. After everything I've said, listen carefully, we still need physical rest. We still need physical rest. And God from the beginning built in not so much a ceremony, because again, we don't even know how that was practiced from from the garden, from the fall up until the law, But God built in a rhythm of the weeks and one day out of seven. And that model is still healthy and helpful. It's built into the rhythm of creation. And therefore, for any of us to go day by day by day by day and week after week after week and never take time for refreshment and for rest and for being refreshed, renewed, it's foolish and unwise. Not because we are commanded to do so because we're no longer under that law, but just the wisdom of caring for ourselves in a way that honors God who created us and also recognizes that we are to be tools in his hand. And therefore, the one in seven model is again healthy and helpful. We still need physical rest. Now, there's something else we need. And that is we need to come together as the people of God for worship. But that is not really in this text. I I, I was stunned. I quote from time to time James Montgomery Boyce, who was a great preacher. No relation. Boyce, not boys. He was a great preacher in Philadelphia in the latter part of the 20th century. And I looked at his sermon on this text. And all he talks about, Tom, is Sunday worship. From Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Sunday worship is not there. The Lord's Day, the time in which the church gathers, that's an appropriate gathering. That's commanded that we gather. The day itself is not even specific. We have the model that it was the Lord's Day. I think it's appropriate that we do it on Sunday. In Western civilization, we still have the means to do this. Nearly all of you don't have to go to work until tomorrow morning. You see, that's a gift of Christendom in Western civilization. And so this is the best time for us to gather and worship. And we love doing it because it's the first day of the week. Years ago, I visited Dubai 
Muslim land, and the Christians there were gathering on Friday morning because Friday was the Sabbath in that community, and they couldn't gather on Sunday because everyone was at work. And so the day is not even specific. The responsibility to gather is specific. And it's not a Sabbath responsibility. It's a Christian responsibility of not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. And so that's all I'll say about that. (laughs) Because it's not really in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. We should gather for worship. But the specifics are completely separate from any Sabbath responsibility. But we still need physical rest. And I think it's glorious. Let me just tell you my opinion on this. And remember when a preacher ever says this, you can just quit listening, all right? But my opinion on this is we are unusually blessed, again, because of Western culture, that we have Saturday, generally speaking, Saturday where we can rest, and then the Lord's Day, Sunday, when we can worship. I think that's a gift from God. Many Christians throughout history have not had that. We are not guaranteed, you understand, that we will necessarily have it in the future. But for now, in our culture, we enjoy that. We still need physical rest. So we need physical rest. The second application of all of this is that we have Sabbath rest. We have Sabbath rest. Here's another way to say it. We have gospel rest. There is a sense in which we rest in the gospel. We rest in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. We no longer labor. We we don't labor in our own effort. We're not going to please God on our own, but we recognize that God has provided a rest through his son, Jesus Christ. And then there's this irony in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. It says, think about this for a minute. The, the writer of Hebrews, I have to think that when the Holy Spirit inspired him and he, and he wrote this, he laughed. Because if you look at Hebrews 4, it says, strive to enter that rest. Do you catch how unusual that is? How ironic? Strive to enter that rest. But that's the point. The point is, we, we recognize that there are temptations. We recognize that we have human weaknesses. And yet God has provided a rest. Think of it this way. We have this identity as God's people, but experientially we won't experience the rest until we remember and we faithfully pursue that identity. We have Sabbath rest. This is the gospel. But this identity must be regularly rehearsed And when we rehearse that identity, it brings it into our experience. This, I think, is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 11. You remember these glorious words? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So no activity, no responsibility. No, look at the next verse. Take my yoke upon you. Wait a minute. Yoke is a work word. You understand that? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is gospel rest. We have Sabbath rest. We have gospel rest. And if you think about it, on that first day, that first seventh day in Genesis 2, God looks at all creation, which he has effortlessly spoken into existence. 
And it's all completed and finished. And he ceases from all his works. And in a sense, he says, it is finished. And then sin comes. The fall comes. And instead of there being delightful labor, there is now burdensome labor. Instead of of having food freely provided, there has to be labor to provide the food. All of this, all of this comes and far worse than that. There's the disobedience, there's the sin, there's the guilt, there's the condemnation, there's death. But then another day comes when one looks upon the work that he's just completed as his hands are outstretched and nailed to a Roman cross. And he also says, it is finished. And Hebrews says, there's your rest. Are you uncertain? There's your rest. Are you fearful? There's your rest. Are you guilty? By the way, yes, you are. There's your rest in the finished work on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. And God is satisfied. And that guilt, if you have never trusted Jesus, that finished work has not yet been applied to your heart and life. And as I do every Sunday, I call you again. That Sabbath rest, this gospel rest is available to you if you will repent and believe. And when you experience that rest, listen carefully, think about this. Nothing you can do will make God love you more. And nothing you can do will make him love you less. It is finished. That's Sabbath rest. The final application We need physical rest. We have Sabbath rest. We anticipate eternal rest. There's a sense in which we've rested now because we rest in Jesus. But thank God that's not the end of the story. And in a very real sense, think about it this way. Remember Revelation? In a very real sense, we return to paradise. In a very real sense, that perfect work when God looked and said this is very good and then sin brings the devastation that we all live in day by day but the book of Revelation promises that one day paradise regained paradise restored this very earth so often we forget this not floating around in in the in the universe somewhere this earth God will say This is what sin did to it. I will restore it, and it will be better than before. And so the word promises. In your heartache right now, in your questioning, in your fear, in your uncertainty right now, hear the word of God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Back like in Eden. He will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And that's an eternal Sabbath. That's a restart of God's plan from the beginning. All to his glory. All to his glory. We all need rest. Yesterday, Christy and I visited briefly with Pamela. And in a weak and barely audible voice, she said, there's just so much I feel like I still want to do. And I said to her, because I was thinking about all of this, I said, no, no, no. What you need now is rest. And that's what God will give you soon. And then we'll be there. We'll be reunited before long. And that's the simple promise that God's people have. The eternal rest for guilty people like us because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Let me give you a Sabbath takeaway today. Not because this is the Sabbath, because it's not. But because of Genesis 2. In Jesus, we find Sabbath rest every day. Not just on Sunday, not just on Saturday. We find Sabbath rest every day. Now and forever. Father, speak to our hearts today. Be especially with our sister Pamela and with Stephen and with Nikki and all of the family. Help us recognize your good gift of Sabbath to your people Israel. And help us recognize that its promises are promises to us as well. It's fulfillment, that glorious fulfillment in Jesus That fulfillment is ours. The promise of the release of a return to Eden, that promise is ours by your grace. Even the gift of occasional rest, the rhythm of life is a good gift from your hand in common grace. Lord, all these things, they perhaps sound or appear to some to be esoteric or unrelated to life. But when we think of life and we think of death, there's nothing that matters more. Thank you that you revealed yourself in creation and we understand that revelation through your word and thank you for the promise we cling to today that one day we will enjoy together the eternal Sabbath rest with our Savior Jesus. In his glorious name we pray, amen.